Now, this is no doubt one of those occasions where you really wish I'd dropped three pages of notes. I want to focus upon the, the, the first passage, uh, the passage from 2 Corinthians rather than the gospel lesson, though both of them are the lectionary passage for today, the fourth Sunday in Lent. So if you want to follow the, the, the outline of this uh, sermon, and I urge you to, to do that by referring backwards to the printing out of 2 Corinthians 5 in the order of service. When I was a young Christian, a very long time ago, I got my first personal post-conversion Bible. I remember going to the shop and buying it. I'd never owned one before. And I wrote in the margins and highlighted and underlined bits. And uh, by the time I eventually laid it to rest, I still got it. It was tatty with bits of things written in it. I don't know, does that, did anybody else do that with their Bibles? No, some people believe it's sacrilege, but uh, mine looked well and truly done over. And in that now battered Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 to 21 was all underlined. And in the margin, a 17 or 18-year-old Martin, the young Christian, had written the descriptive but not particularly theologically eloquent comment, wow. Because this is one of the New Testament's wow passages. Wow because it's laden with rich themes about the new creation in Christ, reconciliation and the righteousness of God. They're all there in 118 words. Wow, because it makes majestic and wonderful claims about what God has done for us in Christ. Wow, because the consequences for Christian people, the instructions they're given, are life-changing and world-transforming. No wonder then that some people have called this passage in 2 Corinthians the gospel in a nutshell. You haven't got time to read the whole of Luke's gospel. Read this passage. You'll get the idea. I want us to look at this passage today. And for those who like things simple, I want you to note that there are two imperative commands in the passage in the Greek. And they create the broad shape of the sermon. The first imperative command is that near the end of the passage, be reconciled to God. And in the Greek, it basically is the general saying to the ranks in the army, this is your instruction. And the second imperative statement is, you have a ministry of reconciliation. And that's another command. But we need to start earlier in spiritual time if we're going to understand this passage. You see, Paul can only get to the point of saying to these Corinthians, be reconciled to God, when he's made something else plainly and wonderfully evident. It's this, God has reconciled us to himself in Christ. You can only say to someone, be reconciled to God, when God has reconciled himself to us in Christ. Now, reconciliation uh, is a, a rather complicated Greek word, katalasso. I don't do this very often for you. It's not very common in the scriptures. 
It's a combination of the preposition kata, which means accordingly or as so, and then the verb alasso, which means to change, to make something other than what it is. So catalasso means to reunite, to bring back together something that was separated for a time. Almost if you like, and this is quite near the Greek meaning, uh, people who were married who then separate and then agree to live together again. Catalasso, to, to reconcile. Now this, says Paul, this word is what God in Christ does for each of us. Through his life and his death and resurrection, God effectively chooses to forgive the sin that separates us from God. God says, in effect, in mercy, I'm going to wipe out human guilt. In grace, I will cross the chasm between me and the created ones who have gone wrong and sinful, and I will make a way through my self-giving on the cross whereby we can be reconciled. Reconciliation is first and foremost an accomplished action of God. A person Reconciliation uh, at this point differs, for instance, from forgiveness. Because forgiveness, it's not perfect, but forgiveness can work one way, as it were. You can reach a point in your life where you say, I know that person will never forgive me, but through prayer and through long reflection, I have reached the point where I have forgiven them in my heart. I can't do or say what they're going to be or respond to me, but I can say what I've done. Now, reconciliation isn't quite like that because reconciliation to be what it is needs two-way response. You can't be reconciled to a person who doesn't want to be reconciled to you. It takes two. A person is like unrequited love. So here, if you like, Paul is making clear that as far as God is concerned, The objective aspect of reconciliation is done. God's done it. You are, God has reconciled you in Christ. What's now awaiting, says Paul, is that which humanity has to do, or refuse to do, and that is choose, will I be reconciled to Christ? Will I be reconciled to God? And when someone is reconciled to God, Paul says, when they embrace what God has done for them and say yes, they seek to live in that new state, that new relationship that Paul describes as the new creation. John Wesley wrote about uh, quite a lot about this passage. It was one of his favorites. And uh, in uh, in his sermons on the New Testament, he wrote this. This is quite something. He was uh, quite a writer. The person has new life, new senses, new faculties, new affections, new appetites, new ideas, new conceptions. The whole tenor of action and conversation is new and they live as if it were in a new world. God, others, the whole creation, heaven, earth and all therein appear to them in a new light and stand related to them in a new manner since they are created anew in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, that sounds pretty new. Now for Paul, 
And for us, 2,000 years later on, we have to reconcile what it means to be called a new creation with the fact that we're still like we are on the earth and not in heaven. For Paul, the cross and resurrection of Jesus is the dividing line between two ages, which he calls the age of the flesh and the age of the spirit. It shot through Paul's writings in a number of books, including 2 Corinthians. The Christian coexists in both of these dimensions for now. This is the realm that you and I are currently living in, the spiritual realm. The heavenly compared to the earthly, the eternal compared to the temporal, the new compared to the old. And so there is for Christians, and Paul understands this, there's a tension in our life because we're living, if you like, between those two ages. The old creation has passed away, but not completely. And the new creation is come, but not yet fully. And scholars refer to this, this state as already and not yet. It's a good way of putting it. And I expect that many of us who try to follow Christ in 2016 know what it feels like to live in two worlds. You've been made new, but tomorrow you're going to have to wake up and do whatever Monday morning brings. And it's at this point in his explanation that Paul comes to these wonderful imperative words. Let me, he says, on behalf of God, appeal to you, be reconciled to God. Now scholars have debated exactly to whom Paul is addressing in that appeal. I mean, if this is a letter to the Corinthian church, you'd think that the answer would be straightforward. The recipients are whoever reads it in Corinth. But of course, we know even by now that Paul was not writing letters just for the 20 or 30 or 40 people who were in one place. They were already gathering this idea that they will be then spread throughout a, a, a growing Christian world as general instructions to early Christians. So has Paul in a broader audience in mind when he says, be reconciled to God? Has he got in mind all Christians in all ages, in all places? Because what Paul is basically saying is, any person who has not been reconciled to God, this appeal is to you too. Be reconciled to God. Because you can be, because of what Christ has done for you, and that therefore must include even us, even today, even here. And whoever you are, whether you're a member of the church in Corinth or anywhere else in the world, know this, and this for me is an underlined line in my sermon notes. Once you have been reconciled to God, you have been given the ministry, the task of reconciliation. This is actually more spectacular than it sounds. Paul is at pains in numbers of places in the New Testament to work out what gifts have been given 
to the body of Christ and particularly to individual groups of people within the church. It's Paul who comes up with those lists that says some are called to be apostles and some are healers and some speak with different tongues and some are given. And he goes on to say in a book or an earlier letter to the very same Christians, has everybody got the same gift? No, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And here he is writing to the same Christians in effect saying, there's one ministry, there's one gift, there's one responsibility that is the universal calling of every Christian. You've all got this ministry. It's the ministry of reconciliation. Now in case you think all this is somewhat theoretical and spiritual rather than actually real, really affecting real life, I want you to Remember that Paul is writing to a real group of people. And they're a group of people who have severely hurt Paul. The context is complicated and we haven't got time, but I'll put it very simply this morning. It goes something like this. After writing what we call 1 Corinthians and sending it off in the care of Timothy to Corinth, Paul decides to visit the church again. So he sets off and visits them. And during this visit, we don't know quite what happened, Paul is either insulted or possibly assaulted and injured by an unknown person or persons in the church, and the rest of the church takes no action against the people. He also keeps hearing from a distance of poor witness, unchristian behavior, selfishness, and so Paul sends the Corinthians having left them another letter. It's not this one. It may be part of this one, uh, but it may be one that we've lost. It's referred to, for those of you who like these things, in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, and it's often known as the letter of tears because in it Paul refers to, I'm sending this to you with tears. And he sends that in the care of Titus, criticizing the Corinthian congregation for ignoring the incident that's caused him such hurt and telling them that they're not really being very Christian for tolerating it or putting up with it. Titus then meets up with Paul in Macedonia, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and reports that the church have received Paul's letter and have now disciplined the offending individual or persons but is also told that most of the Christians in Corinth are absolutely mortified at having received his tearful letter. So he solved one problem and created another. What a mess. And remember, this is only Paul's account of, this, of the story. It would be great, wouldn't it, to get all the church council members together in Corinth and say, what's your side of the story about all this? It gets worse. There's some super spiritual apostles show up in Corinth who are pleased with Paul severity that the church ought to be very, very disciplined and very regimented, but very critical of Paul being at all gentle or forgiving with the church. To Paul's way of thinking, he refers that to their ministry as that of Satan. There's loads of references in 2 Corinthians. 
Yet it seems that some of the church congregation have started to admire the moral absoluteness of these super saints. In short, this church is in pieces. If ever a community and its leaders needed a new start, this is the church community. Paul's conviction is that the new start that they needed doesn't begin with a renewed application of the law, and it doesn't actually begin with everybody pretending to be more spiritual. What's needed to get them out of this spiritual and relational disaster area is what is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 to 21. God has reconciled us to himself. Be reconciled to God. God has given each one of you the ministry of reconciliation. The gospel in a nutshell. This is real stuff, folks. Jesus died for our sins, but in dying to save us, he died so that sins like fractured relationships, dysfunctional families, lost friendships, long-standing vendettas, and ruptured social services, circles should be restored. He died that his church might be the body, a new creation, and that when people encounter his church, out of all the possible human constructions on earth, they find it easier to believe in God. A God who loves, accepts, is merciful, forgiving, and healing. Oh, surely you're making a bit much of this, Martin. You've got all woozy, it's your foot. Surely, surely, Martin, alienation among people, people just falling out, poor relationships, bad witness, it's just the way things are. People are different. Things like that just happen. One person says the wrong thing to another and that's it. In congregations, Martin, as in corporations, people come, people go. Some people like one another. Some people can't stand each other. The person to whom you were once close is now the person you won't speak to. And you cross the street just to avoid them. It happens all the time. It's life, Martin. Grow up. The problem is that the gospel is God's loud no to that casual dismissal of that that stands against reconciliation. Think for a moment of Paul's own spiritual journey. He knew in his own lifetime that he'd gone from being God's number one enemy to the person who is referred to as the beloved apostle. There was a time in Paul's life when if somebody mentioned the name Jesus the Christ, in Paul's presence when he was called Saul, he began to swear about that, to deny it, and it was a, face, a name that he declared he wanted to wipe from the face of the earth. Paul stands by in the Acts of the Apostles while they stone Stephen, the first Christian apostle. He holds the cloak of the executioners and cheers them on, and he knows how Stephen died which was faithfully. Paul knows that reconciling alienated people 
is one of the key reasons why Jesus died, because Paul is an example of that reconciliation. And so to this group of Corinthian Christians, Paul says, you are new creations, and you are ambassadors of Christ. What kind of ambassadors of Christ are we? Not surprisingly, our congregation finds itself where almost all congregations are. We need to remember and rejoice that God has reconciled us to himself in Christ. It's a gift. We need to examine ourselves, particularly in this season of Lent. Are we reconciled to God? Oh, yes, we say. I was reconciled to God in 1967 or 1978 or 2004. But have we moved slowly and through various circumstances, which we'll always claim are not quite our fault, to a position where our heart and our spirit and our words and our actions are not really those who have been reconciled to God. We need to take hold of the miracle that being in Christ makes as a new creation. And as we live in the time between the old and the new, the spirit and the earth, we're seen to be those who strive for the spirit, not wallow in the inevitability of the fleshly. We need to receive again the imperative command, you have a ministry of reconciliation. You are my ambassadors. And you're my ambassadors, whether you're good ambassadors or poor ambassadors. And so quietly now before God, we acknowledge what sort of ambassador we are and ask again for strength and grace and healing to become a better reconciled and reconciling agent of the one who reconciled all things to himself in Christ. And our response is to keep silent and ask what God would have of us. Lord God, who knows us and loves us. Take us further from where we are to where we need to be. And where we are unable to fashion the words that appropriately offer you what we are and feel. In your sovereign grace, act and renew us, making us a new creation and better ambassadors of your reconciling love.
through Christ our Lord. Amen.